Whether you're at the workplace or just kicking around home, we've got uh, overcast skies, a little bit of wet coming down. And Jim, if you look out the uh, north window, mm-hmm. it's just turning to snow now. It is. Look at that. It is. Well, I noticed when I was driving down that most of the raindrops seem to have little bits of ice inside them. It has just and, uh, turned to snow. Yeah, as I got closer to the studio, they seemed to turn into tiny, tiny hard snowflakes. We uh, in Lincoln, Nebraska, we hit uh, 80 degrees yesterday. Mm-hmm. Today or tonight, rather, will be a record low for this time of year. We're experiencing rain turning to snow right now. And, and we, we may or may not get a couple of inches of snow today. We're right on the edge of a winter storm and a blizzard. Uh, folks up in the uh, Niobrara, Sand Hills area <laughs> are going to get pounded. They're getting 12 to 16 inches yeah. up there. Um, I look at it this way, Jim. This is going to green up so much. Oh, sure. It's just going to be wonderful because we're going we're gonna to go right back up in temperatures and uh, it'll, mean, right, right now, whatever hits the ground is just melting instantly, so it's all turning into water. It'll, it'll be wonderful. Hey, speaking of wonderful, wonder-filled, how's your Saturday morning going? What do, you, what do you have in your cup right now? I've got some Jack Reacher coffee that is quite good. I'm on my second cup. I had one at home and working on the second here in the studio. And we're nice and comfortable in the, mm-hmm. the near-new KZUM radio studios here in Lincoln, Nebraska. And it's sure great to have you folks out there listening, uh, live and also on the archive. We've got a great show this morning. We've got Charlene with Pet Talk from the Capital Humane Society. We've got Paula Harris with UFOs, ETs, and Exopolitics. And our main guests, Charlie and Linda Bloom authors of multiple books, including the brand new one, That Which Doesn't Kill Us, How One Couple Became Stronger at the Broken Places. Let's start the broadcast with Charlene and the Capital Humane Society. She she should be right there. Hi, Charlene. Good morning. Hi. Hey, so we've got rain turning to snow. That's right. We have a um, a husky that's available for adoption, so she probably would like this weather very much. Oh, she would love it. Yeah. Tales and trails. What's going on? Uh, we will have that great event coming up on May nineteenth. It's a lot of fun and a great fundraiser for us. It is at the Fallbrook Town Center, and you can register and learn more by clicking the uh, image on our website at capitalhumanesociety.org. That dog in the lower right-hand corner of the image it looks like his ears are just going to catch the wind and take him off. Yeah, I think it was, that was taken last year, and it was pretty warm, so we had baby pools full of water so they could cool off. He might have been laying in one of those. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, and we've got uh, an annual kitten shower. You've heard the phrase, it's raining cats and dogs. Well, uh, they're going to have a kitten shower. Tell us about that. And that's a lot of fun, too. That's May 12th from 11 to 2 at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center. And it's a fun time to come meet kittens, meet our wonderful foster families, and maybe consider becoming a foster volunteer. Uh, it's a, a good event, a fun day, so we hope lots of people will join us. This is Charlene with the Capital Humane Society, and we're looking at the website, 
capitalhumanesociety.org. And we're going to talk about some cats and kittens for adoption. Who's up first? We're going to start with Jewel. And she's poking her head out of her, her little hidey hole there. Oh, she's yeah. about 11 months old, just a spade, uh, female, domestic, short hair, um, a little bit shy. That's why she's hiding. But she does come out and say hello as soon as she knows you're nice and you're going to be calm. So she's looking for a home with kind people where she can just purr the days away. Okay, just to be clear, you're not getting half a cat. <laughs> I was just going to say the same thing. <laughs> the, the rest of her is inside the box on the other side of the hole. Yeah, you get the back end too, right? What a cute picture. If you'd like to have a Jewel in your family, take a look at Jewel. A great-looking cat, and she's followed by... Norman, and he is two years old, a neutered male. Norman, like Jewel, is a black and white cat. Very, very cute. He's all snug in his bed there. He's got a half pink and half black nose, Aww. bright eyes, a great attitude, ready to be adopted. So if you're a fan of Cheers and your name is Cliff, this is the cat for you. This, uh-huh. is, this is your buddy, Norm. Norman! Um... Uh, from what we could see, the cat looks pretty pretty cool. The cat's uh, comfortable in, in the kitty bed there. He's relaxed. Just sort of peeking over the top of that. You know, not really wound up too much. Just kind of looking at the person with a camera going, hmm. And I think he was getting attention from one of our wonderful volunteers when we took that picture. So he was just in the middle of getting some nice pets and pats, and he was happy about that. I've always thought that cats have relaxation down to a science. There's there's yeah. no creature that knows how to relax better than a cat. Sometimes they have no backbone. They just they're there's no vertebrae. Yeah. They're just you know, just like a kind of a tube. Okay, Very we cute, yeah. we've got Jewel and Norman, two great cats, and who's next? Summer, and she's an eleven month old spayed female. She arrived as a lost cat at the Humane Society. She's being a little bit shy in her picture, too, so she's completely back (laughs) in her hidey hole. But she'll come out when she knows that you're interested in meeting her. She is looking for a home without other cats or dogs, so she wants to be your one and only furry friend. So she's a light-colored kitty, so she'd be a little bit easier to see in the dark. (laughs) Beautiful eyes. Beautiful, Beautiful. Sharp, clear, attentive, alert, watching your every move. I think it's the same title as the book Summer by Robin McKinley. Mm-hmm. A great book. Could be a great cat. You could see the cat up close for sure. And uh, wait until you see this cat's gorgeous eyes. Yeah. CapitalHumaneSociety.org to take a look at Summer. Or why not go out and see Jewel, Norman, and Summer this very day. Here's Charlene with Hours Open. Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center is open today and tomorrow from 11 to 5.30. Dogs for adoption. We've got some great dogs here we're looking at. Who, who goes first? We're going to do Shane first. And he is a very handsome chocolate lab, about seven years old, a neutered male, loves to have mm-hmm. fun, has a little arthritis, but it really doesn't slow him down. Um, He's looking for someone who will give him daily strolls, plenty of attention. Um, We recommend that he meets all other dogs and children to make sure it's a good match. Great-looking chocolate lab, Shane. 
And uh, Alan Ladd, what a great movie. Mm-hmm. What a yeah, great I movie. That. I have this image in my mind of this little kid running, hollering, Shane, Shane. That could, that could happen with this dog. Absolutely. Shane's a great first dog here for adoption. And then there's... Marley. And Marley is a one-year-old neuter male <laughs> shepherd mix. He's very cute in his photo with his little pink tongue hanging out, ready to play, um, always ready to have fun, looking for a home with people who have time to provide him with the exercise and training he needs. He might even be a good running partner. So he is looking for a family that really can keep up with him. Yeah. Hey, Marley, show us your tongue, buddy. <laughs> hey, how you doing? Hey, you got a treat there in your hand? Okay, enough of that. Shane, Marley, two great dogs. There's a third dog. His or her name is? I was going to talk about Nikki, our Siberian husky that would love the snow. <laughs> She's five years old, a spade female, beautiful light blue eyes. Uh, she is very vocal, which can be um, a trait in huskies, so she needs somebody who understands that and will work with it. She was brought to the shelter because she didn't get along with the other dog in the home, so she needs a new home with no dogs and no cats, um, but she's a beautiful dog, and if you're a fan of the husky breed, she'll want to meet you. Great-looking dog. You can see these dogs' pictures and read a blurb about them at capitalhumanesociety.org. And we've got Nikki, Marley, and Shane, among some other great dogs here. Uh, visit the page, better yet, maybe grab a friend or the kids and go out and see the staff today and take a look at these great dogs. Sherling, again, what are hours open today and tomorrow? We will be open today and tomorrow from 11 to 5.30 at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center. When folks come out to see the dogs and cats we've talked about, uh, what could they bring you to donate? What are, what are you in need of? Uh, we are always grateful for donations. So you can bring towels and blankets. We use those for bedding for the animals. Um, we have a long wish list on our website at capitalhumanesociety.org. Um, a lot of times this time of year we're going to start seeing kittens, so we need kitten supplies. Uh, there's that list on the kitten shower image of things we can use, like kitten milk replacer, kitten chow, canned kitten food. Uh, so think kittens, and uh, you'll think of something great to donate. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, fun stuff coming up, the kitten shower, as well as the Tales and Trails Pet Walk, information at capitalhumanesociety.org. Thanks, Charlene, for all that you do, and uh, have a great rest of the day. We appreciate your support so much. You have a great day, too. The Capital Humane Society, make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. And we're connecting with our next guest, Paula Harris. Looks like Jim's got her. Hello, Paula, are you there? Yeah, I'm here in beautiful Colorado, yes. Paula, uh, overnight we all learned about the passing of Art Bell. Yes, I saw it too. He was a uh, guy that uh, that had an interest in talking about uh, the paranormal and um, 
began to include that more and more in his broadcasts and then started a late-night program that continues today uh, and had his hand in radio just right up to the end. So uh, our condolences to the many fans of Art Bell. And uh, Art, you're now right in the middle of one of the biggest mysteries of all. So Godspeed. Paula, how are you and everything else doing? How are you? I'm doing well. I, I go back to Art Bell for a minute. <laughs> he was the first vehicle where people could listen to uh, um, subjects that were taboo way back in the old days. Uh, when he did his uh, his transmissions from corrupt Nevada, everybody that was interested in UFOs, the paranormal, conspiracy theory, and so forth, had a vehicle to listen. And it. it Actually, we stand on his shoulders, shows like, uh, you know, even, you know, your show and a lot of other shows uh, that talk about this now as something normal, something that needs to be discussed, uh, a dialogue, um, is is really grateful to Art Bell. And, uh, you know, those, those were, as they say, the good old days when all that started, but now it's become a little bit more accepted to to touch on these subject matters, which should be something that should be in our everyday life. Uh, so I, you know, I, I I want to pay tribute to him too. As a as a journalist, there would be no way if I didn't have these shows. There would be no way to share research with the outside world. Yeah, just a small correction. Uh, we were on the air before Art Bell was. We're the the longest you running. Were. Wow. <laughs> Longest yeah. running show in the world. Mm-hmm. But uh, in terms well, of... What, what was your year? What was your year? 1984. Holy moly. <laughs> but in terms wow. of the well, worldwide listenership and what Art did uh, uh, almost nightly, we've got a weekly gig. He was doing it nightly. Uh, he yeah. did an uh, incredible job. And Art it, had a conversational way that he really made the listeners feel like you were sitting right there with him. And he's still on the air, too, with uh, Somewhere in Time. They rebroadcast old shows every week. And uh, it's, it's quite fun to listen to them. Paul, you've got an Yeah, ex- the only problem is that it's early in the morning, like from 1 to 2 or something like that. So I don't know, unless you're traveling or you're truck drivers or you, you tape it or something, it's really hard to stay up that late. Mm-hmm. This is Paula Harris, P-A-O-L-A, and her website is paulaharris.com. You've got a wonderful event every November in Laughlin, Nevada, and I've been to a couple of them. I'll be back this November again. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Starworks UFO Symposium? Is it open to the public? Yes, it certainly is. It's it's a conference that's been going on for five years, Scott, and it is a UFO conference, but it's also, we include the paranormal, we include um, consciousness studies, uh, and so forth. And this year, the theme is the return of the star people, which is going to focus on Native American, a Native American um history where they say their their ancestors came from the stars and many many indigenous people say that too uh and it is 
becoming one of the only ones. Uh, in, it's in Laughlin, and, and when you come over the hill and you see Laughlin there, it's one of the only ones that has any kind of outdoor uh, ambiance because the Aquarius Hotel is along the Colorado River. So there's trees and a river, and you can sit outside and look at the river. Uh, a lot of the other conferences have gone downtown indoors in these huge hotels. So we're among the only ones where at night, if you want to, you can go and see a sky watch because you're in the middle of Nevada there or down in southern Nevada. Uh, and it, uh, it's, oh, this year we have Grant Cameron, Danny Sheehan, uh, Jaime Malsan, um, and we have, and, and from the UK Paranormal uh, Magazine, uh, Steve Mera. Uh, Ricardo Gonzalez, who's a contactee who has had formal contact with space people. I have tried to balance it with uh, seven men and seven women because I really believe in the balance in conferences. And uh, it is November 2nd through 4th, very, very uh, economical. The hotel rooms are $49 a night. That doesn't ever happen. Uh, and, uh, and it includes a formal dinner, a cocktail party, uh, two two night events. One is the movie, and uh, and eighteen speakers. And and uh, and I think that it's a way of people, just like radio shows. You know, it's a way of people coming together, like minded, to be able to be comfortable and speak about things that they really, really are interested in. And most of all, I'm going to end it with this: it's new information. It's not the same old, same old. Hey, I, I won't mention a, uh, a recent conference that took place that had basically the same cast of people from the previous year and one token female. Uh, tell, us why, tell us why your conference is designed to be a little bit different. What, what makes the Star Wars UFO Symposium different from other events? Well, you know, I think it is bringing in new information. It's it's a great effort for me, though, Scott. People should know because I have to. I'm flying in. Did get Klaus from Barcelona, one of the females, but she does uh, work and takes tours to the Bosnian pyramids. Very much interested in the UFO phenomenon, and you know, I try to get this new information to people. I try to get these testimonies. The the Navajo Rangers we'll be talking about the uh the in, in phoenix all the sightings over the reservation there it's not the same old you know ufo data anymore scott we have so much data that shows that ufos are real we have so much and my goodness my five books are all military they're pilots astronauts intelligence people that have worked in these programs that's the you know that we know the, the next step is, where does this lead us? Why do we, ha why do we study this? What are the messages from the contacts? Uh, and Ricardo Gonzalez will be very clear on what the messages are from his contact. Um, and, the, you know, that is the next step. We've got to go past just how many UFOs are over the state of New York. Uh, and so the conference is unique in that it goes to the next step. And, uh, and it also goes to the idea that we are a cosmic race and that we need to raise our consciousness. Otherwise, we'll be doing the same things we, we did for the last 50 years, 100 years. 
And so it's more inspiring. We have information. I think that the conference has inspiration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a, a balance of male and female presenters. You know, other, other conferences, if you look at the list of speakers, you make the assumption that there's no females involved in the field. Well, there are females. It's just they're not all in this country. Uh, you know, I brought Essen Sakurara and you met her from Denmark. Uh, yep, wonderful brought, lady. Uh, yeah, people from Australia. Uh, I've, had to, I've had to bring uh, uh, researchers from other fields that are not necessarily the movie stars of our field. Uh, those, those people get a lot of, um, uh, they get a lot of exposure because of TV shows and, you know, and so forth. I, I have to look around to see who's doing the work and who can inspire. And uh, so, and it's been a lot of work to, to find uh, qualified uh, female speakers, but they're there, they're there. Uh, and, it's, and it's wonderful that we can have that kind of balance. I always have a panel, uh, and the panel is balanced. Uh, there's males and females, and, and, uh, and, and there's difference of, of points of view, which I think is so stimulating for the audience. One of the things, Paula, that you touched on earlier, too, is something I appreciate is, is uh, it's such a welcoming environment, uh, and you'll meet people from all around the world and form relationships with people. You can be as open as you wish, and you'll have people meet you at that level, uh, and it's a heck of a lot of fun. So takes place in a setting along the Colorado River uh, at the Aquarius Casino Resort. It's a fun weekend, and uh, more information, Paula's website is starworksusa.com. Paul, what are you and doing? This year, and this year the color is green, so let me, let me make it clear, because every year we pick a color, and the car, everybody dresses in that color at the cocktail party, so this year the color is green. What are you doing for the rest of the weekend? We got rain turning to snow here in Lincoln. No, that it's gorgeous here. It's almost seventy degrees. There's not a cloud in the sky. <laughs> I think you're getting what we got yesterday. Yes, we had eighty degrees yesterday, and now we're going to get the record low tonight. So um, there is oh, no, no place like Nebraska. And thanks for sending us the moisture from Upslope. We appreciate that. I, I think. I think it's going your way, but just know that if we've got a beautiful blue sky and almost 70 degrees today, you're going to get that tomorrow, aren't you? Doesn't it pass your way? Yep. Okay, Paula, thank you so much for all that you do. uh, Yeah, thank you, Scott. I'm just going to enjoy the day, and I appreciate your support and wish you all well. Paula Harris. Her website is P-A-O-L-A, PaulaHarris.com. She's with us every second Saturday with UFOs, ET, and Exopolitics. And Paula's one of my favorite people. She's been at this for a long time, and she asks, I think, important questions. She helps people go to that next level of, of besides UFOs are real, then what? And she helps us understand some of those questions as we all search for the truth. I'm Scott Colborn and Jim Shorty. How do you like the coffee here? Coffee's great, thanks. Some Jack Reacher awesome. coffee.
It's sure great to know that you folks are out there. We're going to take a rather long break, and we'll be back with our main guests, and that's Charlie and Linda Bloom. They're the authors of multiple books, including That Which Doesn't Kill Us, How One Couple Became Stronger at the Broken Places. That's music from Enigma, their last CD, Cobalt. And uh, pretty soon we'll be able to say the previous CD because uh, Jim informed me off mic that there is a new one in the works. Yep, it's at the final engineering stage right now, and I hope to have an advanced copy of it soon. So you'll hear it here first. That first track that we play a lot of, I just love it. Uh, It's called Sky Dancer. The band is Enigma, and they play around southeast Nebraska here. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. First-time guests are up next, Charlie and Linda Bloom. And uh, these book titles, I think, will help kind of set the stage for what we may be talking about this morning. Happily Ever After and 39 Other Myths About Love. Secrets of Great Marriages, Real Truth from Real Couples About Lasting Love, 101 Things I Wish I Knew When I Got Married, Simple Lessons to Make Love Last, and their most recent, the brand new book, That Which Doesn't Kill Us, How One Couple Became Stronger at the Broken Places. They've been working with people with relationships and mindfulness training since 1975. Please welcome Charlie and Linda Bloom. Good morning to you both. Well, hi there. I'm delighted to be with you. Good morning to you. And uh, Charlie and Linda, may I use your first names as we have our conversation? Sure. Sure. If we can use yours. You bet. (laughs) I answer to Scott or hey you. And uh, (laughs) over here on my left uh, is my friend Jim. Good morning. Hi, Jim. Hi. Where do we find you this wonderful morning? What part of the world? We're in Santa Cruz, California, near the beach. We're south of San Francisco. We're in Lincoln, Nebraska, and uh, the rain turning to snow appears to have let up momentarily. (laughs) <laughs> Good. Ring is coming. Yes, it is. And this this wonderful moisture here will just continue to help things green up here. Uh, in, in a way, Charlie and Linda, you help people green up as well. Uh, that's, a, that's a way to put it, yeah. Don't... Yeah. Don't you wish that you would have had some of your books when you first got married. Oh, I really wish that we had gotten some guidance. We were so young when we got together, early 20s, and I was run by romantic myths. I thought just because we loved each other, everything was going to flow from there. And I had no clue that there would be harsh winters that looked like maybe the spring was never going to come. And, you know, we wrote that first book uh, that that was to save the young couple some trouble. We had first come up with the ideas when Charlie spoke at his little sister's wedding. 
trying to save her some trouble, saying some of the things that we had learned from our experience. And, you know, that's where 101 Things That I Wish I Knew When I Got Married came from. Mm -hmm. That was narrowed down from 300, so it wouldn't be a big, (laughs) heavy tome. That's how much we didn't know when we got together. So without this sounding like a commercial plug, uh, one of your books, I would think, would be a great gift idea to a couple getting married. What a wonderful wedding present to have that tutorial there. Yeah, um, I I think a lot of people agree with you because um, of the people that we've spoken with who have purchased um, our books, particularly the first one, um, those who told us why they were doing it, um, the majority said they were buying it as a gift to um, a relative or a friend's Mm-hmm. Um, upcoming marriage. So um, uh, we're, we're happy to see that they it looks like they've been put to good use. We find that sometimes the couple's still in infatuation stage when they get married and they're still kind of blissed out. So they put it on the shelf and then when they hit a rough patch, they take it down and read it then. Yeah, mm-hmm. about two weeks later. <laughs> yeah, two weeks later. <laughs> I, I owned a, a bookstore for 19 years. I no longer own it. And there were a handful of books that I could almost guarantee that when somebody bought a copy, they would be right back in to almost buy everything else of that title off the shelf to give them away. And I can see very, very much. Um, I've not read your previous books, but I read That Which Doesn't Kill Us, How One Couple Became Stronger at the Broken Places. I read that cover to cover. And I could see people buying this after they read it to give to folks that they care about. Uh, it's an unflinching tale of your involvement as a couple, if you'll permit me to say it, going to hell and back. We went to hell and back. You said it just like it is. Um, we had a period in the beginning of our marriage that was relatively calm. And for about 12 years, we lived, you know, kind of a, I'd say, a a lesser risk life. And we really were going more for the comfort and security. And we had a supportive, loving community of people. And we got restless. And that's when we moved to the West Coast from the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And Charlie took this job with the corporation that turned our life upside down because the corporation really required being put first before family. And that certainly wasn't my value. And Charlie got in into um, his job and he loved it. And I wanted him to quit because it required and demanded so much of him. And we had an irreconcilable difference that lasted for five years. Mm-hmm. Well, I was wanting him to quit this demanding job, and he was loving his job and didn't want to quit because he was so engaged in the whole process. And it was hell realms because we fought over it so much. Mm -hmm. It was bad enough that I was lonely for him, but we really weren't good combatants at that time. And and we had nasty, ugly fights that made the difficulty even more so. Fortunately, we survived it, and we like to tell the tale because... We want to give inspiration to people who may be in a difficult and rough place in their life now or are going to face one in the future about don't give up too soon because mm-hmm. there, 
the breakdown can become a breakthrough rather than a breakup, but you've got to do a lot of work in the meanwhile to encourage that breakthrough to happen. Charlie and Linda, um, you don't name this company or corporation outright. Is there a reason for that? Can you can you tell us who it was? Um, I could, but I choose not to um, for the same reason that I chose not to reveal it in, in the book. Um, we really want to keep the focus in the book on, although I did write a lot about my experience on the job, mm-hmm. um, we, we really want to keep the focus more on our relationship. And, that, you know, there are, there are several companies like the one that I work for that, that are out there, and I would prefer not to single out mine because it, it would be, first of all, it would be too much of a distraction from the main point of the book, which has to do with um, how a couple that really gets entrenched in some very negative patterns <clears throat> can begin to climb out of it. Um, and um, uh, also, I, I just don't want to create the impression that, that the company was the problem. And it wasn't, it wasn't the company. Um, what I've been told, it's the only corporation I ever worked for, but <clears throat> what I've been told is that most corporations have a similar set of expectations of their employees. And um, it's really not about this particular company, although my job was kind of unique. Um, it was really more about the corporate culture that is so unsupportive of family life. Mm-hmm. And um, just as most of my colleagues um, had been divorced at least once, um, the, co- the rate of divorce in the corporate culture is also very high. So it's not just about what it is that we as individuals can do in the midst of pressures to direct our best energies into the job and neglect the family. But what it is, what is it about the culture that promotes these kinds of uh, imbalances in, in our lives? And mm-hmm. how can we deal with that factor, too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I respect uh, you both not wanting to name directly the company. I, I will say that um, one of the things that Charlie and Linda talk about in their book is that when they were going through this rough spot, uh, people within this company that learned about it by various means, uh, they weren't so much pulling for Charlie and Linda to write it out, to stay together, to get stronger, to work it out. Some of the suggestions were basically to Charlie, she's a, she's a problem. Cut her loose. Get rid of her. Divorce her. Basically making making you choose again between your family and the company. And they were saying, cut the family loose. (laughs) Yeah, they were absolutely uh, putting their thumb on the side of the scale that said, um, she's the problem. The company isn't. She's the problem. You You need to let her go because she's getting in the way. That was the 
that was the, the, the implicit and in some cases even the explicit message. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we, you know, I, I was under a fair amount of pressure, although I, I, I don't feel like I was all that influenced by it, but I, I was somewhat influenced by it. Mm-hmm. Linda, as I said, I, I owned a bookstore for 19 years, and uh, as the bookstore wound down through economic challenges and a new reality in, in retail here in, in the Midwest, it also uh, affected my marriage, and through the dissolution of the business, there also became the, the ending of the, the marriage. And so, Linda, I saw much of what you and Charlie write about in the book as being part of my story, too. <laughs> I said, gosh, I went through that. Jeez, I said almost the same words. That's me. That's me. So I, off, I, I offer that anecdote because I think it's going to connect a lot of people that this is not just about Charlie and Linda. This is a book about some serious work to Helen back that many of us have experienced. I think you're hitting the nail right on the head, and that is one of the reasons we wanted to write this book, is so many people go through a traumatic experience. Maybe it's professional, financial, health, marital, might be with a child. But when people go through a traumatic experience, it is definitely hell realms. And you make some descent into the dark, dark, shadowy Places We would do anything to avoid going to those painful places. Mm-hmm. But if we get catapulted into some of those dark places, I really think crises are underrated because it is an opportunity for growth big time. You know, I never, never would have done so much growing and developed my strength and courage and self-reliance and tolerance and acceptance and forgiveness and the qualities that really have served me in my life since this traumatic time. I wouldn't have ever gone willingly. I wouldn't have chosen to go through it. I would have done a hell of a lot to avoid it if I possibly could. Mm -hmm. But if we have to go through these dark passages to really make something of redeeming value out of it. And so it could be any kind of crisis. I think our depicting our particular one about how we were you know, so combative about uh, our difference, uh, basic values difference is just one of the many things that can take you into the hell realm. And I, I would, you know, bet my bottom dollar that some of the things that you're experiencing now Um, that are beneficial in your life came out of that dark period, just like it did for us. Mm -hmm. Yep, I've I've told folks that uh, there were many nights that uh, it seemed like the long, dark night of the soul uh, had sort of settled in for longer than just a dark night. And I would go out on my back deck at night and look up to the stars and pray and just say, you know, I don't have a clue, but I will show up and do my best and please, uh, please help me. Please give me guidance. Uh, I wanted to yeah, say... Yeah, kind of crisis bring us down to our knees, and that's what yes. catalyzed some deep spiritual work on my part. Yes. And finding myself a spiritual guide and a teacher who could, could really help me in a way that I hadn't been motivated to do that kind of deep work before. I was delighted to see that the book in part, was dedicated to Stephen Levine. 
Now, Stephen wrote with his wife, Andrea, a number of books, including A Gradual Awakening. And that was a book early on that I read that was pivotal in much of who I am right now. And I actually used Stephen's book <laughs> for some meditation classes that I taught for many years as a guidebook or textbook. And it turns out now that you folks knew of Stephen and Andrea. Yeah, we were blessed to um, be able to become friends with, with them. And, and uh, Gradual Awakening was uh, also the first book of his that I read um, at least 25 years ago, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe more. Um, but he, he was uh, really an incredible teacher. And one of the things that, <clears throat> that we both learned was that you can have a mentor, um, as Stephen was for us, um, without necessarily having regular meetings with them or even being uh, physically present with them because you really can absorb some of their essential teachings through their work or their writings or their transmissions in whatever way, <clears throat> whatever form they come in, and you can, be, you can be guided by that. And even though we didn't have a lot of contact with Stephen and Andrea, um, we really carried their teachings within us. And um, I think that example in the book where um, Linda writes about how we went to um, Oregon and did a couples retreat with them mm-hmm. and um, what the outcome of that was and how a very brief, direct personal interaction with Stephen and Andrea uh, had a profound impact on Linda from the moment that she left that day um, indefinitely. That was a pivotal moment for me because I was just about ready to throw in the towel and call the divorce lawyer and say, I just, I can't do this anymore. This is too, this is too painful. I'm suffering too much and my self-esteem is in at um, stake here, and I feel like I'm so out of integrity and not living the values that I want to live. And so it was kind of a last-ditch effort, and I really was taking Charlie to Brighton Bush, Oregon, for Stephen and Andrea to confront him, because it was so obvious to me that he was so clearly in the wrong. I needed to get fixed. That he sired these children, and then he went off to build his career and flying all over the country and Canada and, and forsaking his family. And they didn't nail him to the wall. They nailed me to the wall. And I still believe that it's because they sensed that I was the one that was motivated to do some work. And Charlie was willing to give the relationship up. And so they told me, you know, you've really got to loosen up your white-knuckle grip on the... You're holding it too tight, the vision of what you want your marriage and your family to be. It isn't like that. And if you practice regularly forgiveness meditation of Charlie for not being husband Charlie charming and father charming and you're not being mother charming because you're so stressed and irritable... I'm paraphrasing, they didn't use these exact words, but they told me, basically, do your own work. Practice forgiveness, practice letting go, practice non-attachment. And I trusted them. They were just so dear to me, and I had such reverence 
for them, and I was so desperate at the time to try anything that I took the forgiveness meditation on as a practice, and I did it regularly for an entire year, and it was it was hugely impactful. It made such a difference to make the precious little time that Charlie and I did have together sweeter and kinder and more gentle and more mm-hmm. compassionate. Uh, I want to just add a quick caveat to that, Scott. Um, we're not implying, and we try to make this clear in the book, that um, all relationships require you to let go of your attachment to how you think or how you need this to be and just accept it as it is without being proactive in making uh, a change or influencing it to move in that direction. We don't want to create the idea that we think that the answer to all marital or relationship issues is just to suck it up or to accept it the way it is and to forgive and let go. That can be, and it often is, an important step in the process. However, there are times, there are situations, there are circumstances in which um, after uh, a certain amount of time and effort and energy to really be as as accepting and as present and to do the work that you can do is that even after doing the best that you can you're still not moving towards the fulfillment of, of your vision it can be time to really reassess is this the right place for me to be now mm-hmm. not all relationships not all marriages are meant to continue nor should they uh, forever, no matter what. And that's a very important clarification. And I never did completely let go of my vision of what I wanted our, vi- our family life and our marriage to be like. But I sure did loosen up my tight grip that I was holding on to it so tight. It was making me miserable. Me too. Mm. <laughs> yeah, Charlie and Linda, uh, we'll talk more about this, but, but both people have got to want to make it work. There's got to be that continuing commitment to to make it And you work. know what? Both people don't have the same level of commitment at the same time. Mm-hmm. Because there was a, a period of time where I think Charlie would have been willing to let go of the marriage. And I was the one that was carrying the commitment for two for a while. And I didn't know how long I was going to be able to carry it for the two of us. It's a, it's a heavy weight to carry it for two. And uh, when I finally got so exhausted that I couldn't do it anymore and put it down, it was very scary because I wasn't sure if Charlie was going to pick it up. But fortunately, he did have enough desire to keep the marriage and the family intact that he picked up some responsibility for, at the very least, the day that he was home, to clear the decks from other concerns so that we could have that precious little one day a week to really make a meaningful connection with each other. And then I could make it one more week. This is Charlie and Linda Bloom. They're the authors of multiple books, including the brand new one, That Which Doesn't Kill Us, How One Couple Became Stronger at the Broken Places. If you look up on your favorite browser, Bloom Work. Dot com. You'll find their website. 
And on Facebook, if you simply type in Linda and Charlie Bloom, they'll pop right Familiar music right there. Websites, easy to find. It's bloomwork.com. Also on Facebook, Charlie and Linda Bloom, B-L-O-O-M. First-time guests, Charlie and Linda. Uh, you folks, uh, I have great respect for you because... I learned this term many years ago, and I'd like to to apply that to you if you'll permit me. Uh, you are wounded healers. That's right. <laughs> and I, we I, have been through some very difficult times. Um, we have had difficulties with our marriage. We're both cancer survivors. We've um, had some severe losses, and we both come from families who didn't give us really great models of marriage and family mm-hmm. life. So all of these things have propelled us uh, to learn a great deal for our own benefit. And I am deeply grateful for the people who helped us, therapists, workshop leaders, Stephen and Andrea, other people um, and I feel a sense of responsibility to pay it forward to mm-hmm. other couples who are struggling because that seems to be one of the most uh, commonplace struggles. And um, it broke my heart when I heard the statistic about how long people wait before they call the marriage counselor for help. It's on average several years that people are in pain and confusion and angry and shut down and disconnected. And I just think that's a lot of unnecessary suffering. The other statistic that breaks my heart is that the majority of people get divorced don't even have one marriage counseling session. (laughs) And I just Um, I think it's a shame because there's some good marriage counselors out there. There's some wonderful books on relationship and there's some terrific workshops. And if people can get a different point of view and particularly if they get this thing about putting their attention on themselves rather than on their partner and what they're doing and not doing and saying and not saying, it can be a huge turning point for the better. And we have seen so many couples that their relationships were in deep trouble, really train wrecks, who are able to really uh, repair and do that. And I don't feel like we would be as effective as we are without having gone through, mm-hmm. you know, the wounds and traumas that we went through and learned from them. It's, it's with honor and respect that I give you that term, wounded healer. I admire people like yourselves that uh, have had their shirt sleeves rolled up, been in the depth and breadth of life, and share their work with people. I admire folks like yourself. I think there is great value. Uh, I am less trustful of people that uh, almost appear to be sitting on a throne uh, detached from humanity, issuing edicts about how things should be, Typically, they're finding fault with with people, and I don't have a lot of trust in that. So, uh, that's that's the term there. And I, again, with great respect, am I correct that you both have lost a child? Yeah, we did. Our our second son even died um, 
in 2001, shortly, um, um, or just, just before we published our uh, first book. God bless um, you both, and his memory as well. Austin, he was 22. Yeah, so we, we've, like Linda said, you know, we've had our share, maybe even more than our share, of, uh, of challenges and, and losses. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in regard to what you just said a minute ago, Scott, about your tendency to trust people who have been through it more than people who have not been but who claim um, to be experts, I want to quote our mutual friend Stephen again. Mm-hmm. And uh, what Stephen, uh, <laughs> what I've heard him say more than once, is um, people who claim to have their, uh, because on the radio I'll say crap, <laughs> together usually are standing in it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I I really resonate towards that, and I totally agree (laughs) with him. Um, What I I found is that that people who really know the territory don't have to announce it, don't have to prove it, don't have to um, influence people to believe them. Um, It's just very obvious. Mm -hmm. It's very apparent when people know the territory. And when they start trying to convince you, that's when you better check your wallet. <laughs> what is it about uh, relationships, Linda and Charlie, that cause each person in that relationship to want to win? Is it, is it, their, uh, is it their ego? Uh, is it the I think control? That's a great question, and I just think that um, it's it's human nature to want to feel secure, to not be afraid and anxious. Mm-hmm. And when you feel that you can win, it gives you the idea that you're safer and that you have in that moment uh, less fear. And people live with a lot of fear and anxiety. Not everybody's in touch with it and names it. But um, I'm from the school of thought that, you know, it was Jerry Jampolsky who wrote Love is Letting Go of Fear, Mm -hmm. that if we can really notice our fear, name our fear, see how much it, it rears its ugly head in our relationships and has us dig our heels in, you know that they get dug into cement and we lose our flexibility. We aren't really coming at our relationships with a spirit of reciprocity. We're not looking for how we can have a win-win situation because I think that it's a less mature point of view to think that you can win. Do you know if you're winning, then somebody else is losing. Mm -hmm. And if you win at somebody else's expense, the trust goes down, the emotional intimacy goes down, the sexual intimacy goes down, the rapport in the relationship really gets compromised. But if you start thinking in win-win terms, you don't want to do anything that is going to put your partner at a disadvantage because you know it's going to come back to bite you on the ass. So you only want them to feel secure to feel um, supported, to feel loved, admired, respected, 
and that you've got their back. And so it, it's a leap in a person's consciousness when they see that the price that you pay for winning is just too dear and you don't want to do it anymore. And there are ways to express ourselves, what we need and what we feel, without the blame and judgment and criticism that invites the combativeness. If I propose the uh, Lyndon Charlie a question to you, uh, I'm sure you have had this a lot in couples. Um, how can people either politely exchange differences or disagreements more directly to the point? How can people argue fairly? For example, could one partner say, when I hear you say or when I see you doing, it makes me feel, and then there's the blank. Is that appropriate? How, how do people tell the other person, you know, I love you, but you're really bugging me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, for many people to hear someone juxtapose those two statements sounds like an oxymoron. Because we have a belief, uh, there's a myth that so many of us take on, that if you really love me, you will never bug me. <laughs> no, because love and being irritated with somebody just cannot go together. And, and so it's because we're kind of possessed by that illusion that, oh, this must mean that you don't love me. Because you're making me, which is, again, a questionable claim, but you're, the, the feeling is you're making me feel this way, and if you loved me, this wouldn't happen. I wouldn't ever feel this way. So um, part of it is, you know, we, we deal with this in our third book about myths. Um, being possessed by these expectations and false beliefs, um, we, we really kind of set ourselves up to feel insecure and to conclude that there's something wrong with the relationship, or there's something wrong with you, or there's something wrong with me when we experience some of these things. And then we get defensive, we get scared. And when we get scared, what we want to do is we want to protect, we want to disengage, we want to counterattack, and that sets up a whole system, a whole interactive program in which we activate each other's fear and anxiety, and then we respond accordingly, and we're off and running. And with most couples, they never really learn, and it is, it is uh, a skill, but they never develop the ability to interrupt that cycle, and it just keeps taking them deeper and deeper into the feelings that they're trying to get away from. So one of the things that we try to do in our in our counseling sessions and in our workshops that we teach is we try to help people to identify when, because you can't avoid that. We're human. We're going to get activated. We're going to feel threatened sometimes. We're going to say things that provoke the other person. We can't help it. You know, there's, if we have the expectation that that shouldn't happen, we're really setting ourselves up for disaster. But what we can do is we can, first of all, learn how to recognize it when we are beginning to go down that slippery slope. 
we can begin to say, okay, we're in it again. It's got us. I'm triggered. And here's what we, the first step is just to tell the truth to ourselves and to our partner. I'm triggered. Not you're making me do this or you're making me do this. I'm triggered, meaning I'm activated and, and um, I'm feeling defensive. I'm scared, whatever. And, and then to really speak from my experience rather than to project all kinds of judgments and um, accusations at my partner, you know, you're to this, you know, you never do this, or, you know, trying to control them. Just speak from, this is what I'm feeling now. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm needing. This is what's going on for me. And if both partners speak from that place, rather than hurling accusations at each other, the need for defensiveness slowly begins to go down, and then we can finally begin to hear each other, and then talk about what we're, what's really going on. What's really going on in me right now that's causing me to feel this way and say these things. Mm-hmm. And, and this is not easy work. It is work. It takes energy to override these defensive patterns that we've all developed. I mean, without exception, we all have. Mm-hmm. We've all got our own version. So that's my kind of long-winded response <laughs> mm-hmm. to your question. Yeah, this is Charlie and Linda Bloom, and they're the authors of Happily Ever After and 39 Other Myths About Love, several other books, including the most recent one, That Which Doesn't Kill Us, How One Couple Became Stronger at the Broken Places. And uh, I'm enjoying the conversation. Uh, Our common friend, the publicist Sarah, had introduced me to your work and suggested that I check you out, and I'm sure glad that I've had the opportunity this week to to read your book, to do some reflecting on it, and to to be able to have you here for the the conversation. Uh, Charlie and Linda, I want you to feel like uh, we're having a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, and... I'll do the best I can to try to raise some questions that our listeners might have. At the same time, I want to give you also the microphone, as it were, to cover anything that that I'm missing, because the most important people right now that we're engaged with is our audience, the folks listening to us. Well, I think you're on the right track when you're speaking about handling differences. Because I think it's every couple's challenge to learn how to do it well. And many of us came from families that didn't model how to handle differences well. They either had the same fight over and over and didn't ever get complete about it, or some families are so avoidant, you know, that, that the differences are unspeakable. And the research is quite clear about that. Um, Gottman, John Gottman is a researcher that both Charlie and I really respect, and he said the most at-risk couples are the avoidant ones who don't bring up the difficult issues because they might stay together, but their, their trust and their rapport is compromised because of all the mountain of incompletions that's piled up, and it's divisive between them. Even the volatile couples who don't fight very well, they swear and they threaten and they give ultimatums and they 
power trip and do the domination and submission game, which I'm not recommending at all, uh, do better than the avoidant couples. But who does best are the validating couples. And these are not the hothead volatiles and they're not the withdrawn avoidant stuffers. These are the ones who really learn the fine art of communicating well about differences because the differences are inevitable, but the conflict is not inevitable. There is a way to speak the truth of our own experience that Charlie was just talking about without the blame and judgment part, staying with ourselves. And you're absolutely on the right track when you open the remarks with I love you. We call that the sandwich when we teach in our workshops. To start out with something very positive, to start with the love, to have the opening be, it's because I want to be closer to you, to make some introductory remarks. I don't want anything between us. And there is this thing that's bothering me. There is this thing that's bugging me. There is this thing that I feel like I really need to thrive and it's not present right now. And, you know, something that you did or said is really triggering me and I want you to know that. I don't want to withhold it because I want us to have a really honest, open relationship. But do you see, by declaring the intention that I'm bringing this up not to shame you or blame you or criticizing you, I'm bringing this up because I want us to be closer. I want the trust to be as high as it can possibly be. I don't want anything to interfere with us attaining the highest realms that couples can reach for, to have a deeply intimate partnership and a co-creative relationship. Linda and Shirley, is it is it true from your work um, professionally and personally that when we see something in our partner that we don't like, is it partially mirroring back to us an aspect of ourselves that we that we don't like? Um, well, I would take out the possibly and just say conditionally yes. <laughs> Um, take out the qualifications. Um, the, the reason that we do react strongly to some aspects of our partner's personality or some things they might do or say, and, and, and that others we can very easily overlook um, and not be triggered by, is exactly for the reason that you just mentioned. It's because there's some shadowy aspect of ourselves that we haven't fully come to terms with yet, and that's being activated and brought into our own experience, which makes us feel uncomfortable. So when we judge them, when we react to them, and we try to um, influence them to stop doing or saying or being that way, um, it's out of an effort to get them to stop triggering this part of ourselves that we haven't fully come to terms with. When I use that phrase, come to terms with, what I mean is that we haven't accepted that that's a part of me that is in my own shadow. Um, for your listeners who aren't familiar with that term, it really refers to that aspect of ourselves, aspects, plural, because it's more than just one, uh, that we haven't fully accepted, that we still judge, that we still fear, that we still... Um, uh, think that other people would judge us for having this quality or they would 
be less likely to uh, be accepting of us, or that it would affect their impression of us. Um, you know, so, so let, let's say, for example, that I'm somebody who doesn't want people to, who, who doesn't think that anger is an attractive quality, so I don't want people to think that I ever get angry. I'm going to do a lot to suppress that because I've got my own judgments of it and because I don't want people to see that in me. Uh, let's say that I don't want to be seen as somebody who is uh, soft or weak or not confident. Um, I'm going to do a lot that's going to um, reinforce my public image of being self-assured. Um, so, so whenever there's some part of us that is triggered that's touched by um, a response we're getting from our partner that is illuminating or activating some part of ourselves that we do have in our shadow, we're likely to react um, by trying to control them in whatever ways that might look like. Uh, Linda, are relationships a, a holy encounter? Oh, I see them that way. I see it as a, a really powerful, challenging opportunity to grow spiritually. And if we take on our relationship as our spiritual path, which in no way, shape, or form does uh, lessen the other spiritual practices that we may be doing, Maybe we're sitting in meditation an hour or more every day. Maybe we're singing hymns. Maybe we're in prayer. Maybe we're devoted to service in the world. They're all profound spiritual paths. But there's something very immediate and demanding about taking on our relationship as a spiritual path. Because there is nothing like a committed partnership living under the same roof with somebody and interacting with them day in and day out that's going to call forth what Charlie's talking about right now, the shadow aspect of ourself that we may not be okay with, we may be in denial about, we may have, you know, delegated to the dark dungeon underneath the basement. And any unfinished business, anything that's unhealed from childhood or previous adult relationships, it will force us to take a look and if we welcome you know what is this difficulty in my relationship showing me about myself what is it that I'm not accepting of in myself there is a tremendous amount of humility that comes with doing shadow work and taking our relationship on as a holy path to become uh, a more contributing member of our community. And I think people do themselves a great service when they start to frame the work that they do in their relationship as a very direct way to become a more self-actualized person. And, you know, developing the qualities that may be weak suits, you know, emphasizing and developing our strong suits but also noticing the places that we may be weak. Maybe we're not too patient. Maybe we're selfish. Maybe we're greedy. Maybe um, we 
our dinghy, you know, have a lot of denial. And if we take our relationship on as a place where we are the devoted student and hold our partner as uh, a holy teacher and that we are also the holy teacher for them and they were attracted to us because we have profound teachings to offer them in this lifetime and they do with us, man, that's a good deal. You know, that's a good agreement to make that we will be each other's holy teacher and we will bring out the best in each other. Uh, Charlie and Linda, when we come back from the bottom of the hour break, uh, can we talk about how to be a man and to allow yourself to be vulnerable? I don't, Great I, question. I don't think that I will speak for all men listening, but there's certainly a bunch of us that have had a code that we've uh, grown up with that I kind of call the John Wayne code, you know, uh, that you fight to the last man, you're never vulnerable, you never, never give in. Uh, so when we come back, let's talk about uh, vulnerability and how that can be a strength and perhaps a way shore. Great. This is Linda and Charlie Bloom. You'll find them on Facebook. Just type in Linda and Charlie Bloom. Their website for more information on books and therapy and workshops all over the country. It's bloomwork.com. Jim, what's, uh, what's in your cup here? That's still about a half a cup of this great Jack Reacher coffee. Jack Reacher coffee. Yeah. Good come, stuff. Coming up next week, we've got our old friend Preston Dennett and his brand new book, Undersea UFO Base, an in-depth investigation of USOs in the Santa Catalina USOs. Channel. Stay tuned for more conversation with Linda and Charlie Bloom, the authors of that which doesn't kill us, how one couple became stronger at the broken places, right after this. And Vic comes in at 12 noon with Mesoterra. We've got some more great programming today on KZM Radio. I'm Scott Colborn along with Jim. And uh, Jim, do you have a weather update for us? Uh, it looks like the rain and snow has maybe subsided somewhat here in Lincoln? Well, yeah, we're still in a winter weather advisory until 7 p.m., and uh, they're saying chance, a uh, 90% chance of wintry mix and patchy blowing snow with one to two inches of accumulation possible. And folks, look at it as just being a different form of, of moisture and water. It's well, yeah. going to Everything's going to green up, and it's just going to be verdant and wonderful. It's no big deal. It's just weather. Yeah. Our special guests this morning, first-time guests, Linda and Charlie Bloom, the authors of That Which Doesn't Kill Us, How One Couple Became Stronger at the Broken Places. Uh, Charlie and Linda, I grew up with um, the myth of the guy as being the defender of the hearth, the warrior on the ramparts, protecting against all of incoming anything, always strong to the finish, 
because I eat my spinach. <laughs> I'm Popeye the Scott Colborn man. Uh, and we had, we had this code. We saw some heroes that we grew up with in media uh, that also espoused that. Um, stiff upper lift, the, the tough guy. Um, sometimes hardly even showing emotions, but uh, certainly not being vulnerable. That was not a strength. That was, boy, you don't want to do that because something's going to happen bad. Uh, what's the truth about being, being a male? Can you talk to us about vulnerability? Um, <clears throat> well, um, one aspect of the truth, anyway, is that what we grew up with is not the truth. Um, we are not, as males, fundamentally stronger, less capable of being hurt, um, more powerful, any of the classical stereotypes about men, which, by the way, are not universally held. They're certainly held um, in our culture and um, in, uh, to some a lesser degree in other, <clears throat> in, in other cultures. But, um, you know, Linda and I have done a fair amount of traveling in uh, m- many countries, particularly third world countries, <clears throat> and what we have found is that this is not a universally held belief, that men are intrinsically, inherently different fundamentally um, than, than women, but that each culture values certain traits and qualities that they assign to different genders. And um, um, I don't think any, any culture is completely free from these biases. But in ours, it's, it's pretty strong, the, as you refer to as the John Wayne myth. And it sets us up. It sets us up to <clears throat> promote the idea um, that we are invulnerable, or that men should be invulnerable. And, you know, if you look at the word vulnerability in the dictionary, what you'll see it says is that it says something to the effect of to be uh, vulnerable is to be subject to being harmed or injured. In other words, to be undefended. So, um, in order for us to prevent us from being harmed or injured, or from appearing to be subject to that, appearing to be vulnerable to injury, um, we have to promote a certain outer impression that other people have of us, so that we'll be less likely to be attacked, um, and that impression is one that we very often mistake for ourselves. So it's easy to, if it's important to me to project the image to other people that uh, I am together and I'm uh, strong and solid and I'm not afraid and I'm not weak and I'm not scared and I'm not in doubt or, you know, that I'm very certain of myself that um, I'm going to buy into that and I'm going to resist anything that could expose my vulnerability because it ultimately feels too threatening. It feels like I'm too much at risk. If people see where my weak spots are, uh, then they know where to get me. They know how to get me. They know where I can be um, attacked effectively. 
And, um, you know, as a result, uh, we've promoted generations of males who have been crippled by the inability to be authentic in their lives because to be invulnerable means to be something that you're not. Because fundamentally, you know what? We're all vulnerable. No matter what we do, our feelings can get hurt. People can uh, attack us even if we don't provoke them. Uh, we're all, our condition as human beings is one of incredible vulnerability. And there's nothing we can do about that um, that's going to take it away. We can either be honest about it and, and tell the truth about it and be willing to um, bring that vulnerability into our lives in a way that is conscious and responsible, um, or else we can pretend and that we're not. We can lie. Uh, we can conceal ourselves. And the price that we pay for doing that is it costs us quality relationships because you cannot be deeply connected with another person at the same time be committed to concealing a fundamental truth about who you are. Mm -hmm. So I want to add to what Charlie is saying, that this myth about the strong and vulnerable man being the attractive man, the powerful man, the respectable man, um, the women that I hang around with don't buy into it. And I think that we as women can do a great deal to encourage the men to let down the image of John Wayne and to be real, to get real. And it is not good for relationships when they bring an image of any kind, particularly this one, is damaging to relationships. And to encourage the men by saying, I find your tender heart so attractive. I don't think less of you and think that you're less powerful. I wish that the whole world would recover from the big boys don't cry myth. We're well into the 21st century now and it's still so strong and prevalent. And so women can do a lot to encourage the men in their life to live with an open heart and to be more real. But there's only so far that women can go because I think men need to get the blessing from other men that they may not have gotten from their own dad. So they need to be responsible about finding some men who can be strong enough to be vulnerable and hear that from each other. And I'm very grateful to the men that are in my husband's men's group who have given him that kind of blessing to be real with me to be real with people in general in his life. And I think it's one of the things that enabled him to write this book with me and talk about the shadow side and talk about how limited we were and how much we didn't know and how much we had to learn. And it, it frees us up when we can be real. My daughter recently reminded me about um, why she and I both like the actor Jeff Goldblum, and I saw a vignette uh, being circulated through Facebook of a, a cooking episode where he had a chef came out to his house and, and they cooked a meal and shared it together. And the, the vignette started with Jeff Goldblum actually 
quite well playing some sort of jazz piano. And he was just having a ball. And the guy looked so natural without pretense. Um, it made quite an impact on me. So for, for those that want to maybe substitute an a, a image of John Wayne, look at Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> he might be a good choice. He's our model, don't we? Yep. Um, in the in the remaining minutes we've got, uh, could you each both tell us what we could say today to our partner, our spouse, that would help them and help us? Well. I think one of the most beautiful questions that we speak to our beloved is, how may I best love you? Because we tend to give love the way we like it shown. And if we like to hear the words, the words of affirmation, we tend to give our partner love with words of affirmation. But their favorite love language might be touch. Maybe it's not words or maybe it's acts of service. Or maybe they want objects and gifts or how they spend their leisure time. And when I sat with my beloved and I asked, how may I best love you? We've been together many years and I was shocked to find out that he said, let go. That he really wanted more time and solitude and meditation. So I vowed to be the guardian of his solitude. And I think that that's something that can really enhance a relationship. And you don't just ask that one once. You ask that multiple times. Because it changes. But how may I best love you is a gorgeous question. I got that one from Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm-hmm. Charlie, you want to share anything? Um, well, I, I, I agree with Linda that um, in terms of what, um, what you can say, it's always very meaningful to me when Linda or anybody expresses... Um, a desire to know more about how they can best serve me in this moment right now. Because it's, as a generic question, it doesn't work for me. Um, how, how can I best love you? Um, generally, um, my needs to be loved uh, or have a love shown to me uh, depend upon where I am in the moment, what the circumstances are. What I'm experiencing. So, to to, in, to really clarify that, like in this moment, given where you are, given what you're experiencing, how can I most meaningfully contribute to, to your well-being? Um, and then the other thing about that is that, um, in addition to saying something that really means something, what has for me a lot of meaning <laughs> is when people act in accordance with what fits for me in the moment. So in other words, it's one thing for somebody to tell me that they love me. It's another thing for them to demonstrate that by doing something or by being present with me in a way that is an outer expression of that inner work, inner feeling. Um, That really is very affirming to me. So that's what I would add to that. Patrick and Sharon O'Hara were spiritual mentors of mine many years ago. and One of the favorite things they talked about was um, 
with partners and couples to uh, to play, to become mm-hmm. as little children. Mm. Great. What does uh, what does Charlie Bloom like to do for fun? Do you still play guitar? Yeah, but not as much as I used to. Um, and I, I enjoy doing it with other people, too, just kind of improvising and jamming together. That's always fun. Um, I would say what's at the top of my list these days is um, playing with my grandchildren. We've got three grandsons, <laughs> and they are just a blast to hang out with. And um, we're fortunate enough to live very close to two of them um so we get to see them very frequently and my uh younger grandson lives in santa barbara so we don't get to see him quite as often but um we we uh we do get to hang out with each other and um that's that's at the top of my list these days linda what do you do for fun well i am in two different women's groups and i have a ball with those women but when I play with Charlie, one of the things that we're we're adding into our life a little with a greater frequency than we used to. Um, we don't ever intend to retire because we love what we do for work, but we're changing the proportion and we're traveling more. So just this past week, we just came back from three weeks traveling in India, and we had a marvelous experience. And we're doing another international trip in the fall, so we're picking up the cadence with the frequency that we go and see more of this gorgeous planet. Thank you so much for taking time from your family and from your, uh, your clients that you work with to be with my audience this, uh, this day. And thank you for the opportunity of, of having read your book this week. And, uh, I continue to wish you both well. Thank you for inviting us to be on the show. And I'd like to tell your listening audience that there's a brand new personal growth center in case anybody feels like they'd like to travel out to California. 1440 Multiversity is in a neighboring town to us. It's in Scotts Valley, California. And we've already taught there once. We're going to be teaching there again the first weekend in May. Do you have information up on the website? bloomworks.com absolutely and they've got gifted spiritual teachers and all kinds of personal growth teachers from all over the country teaching there so it's a splendid new place that a lot of people don't know about yet i appreciate that recommendation thank you both very much all the best from lincoln nebraska to where you're at and where you might be in the future thank you scott thanks scott enjoyed it Our guests this morning, Charlie and Linda Bloom. Their website is bloomworks.com. You'll also find Linda and Charlie Bloom on Facebook. The brand new book, That Which Doesn't Kill Us, How One Couple Became Stronger at the Broken Places. And I agree. I, I think that relationships are some of the most beneficial, some of the most demanding things that we can do. Uh, Jim, I think about the character of Bill Murray in the movie The Razor's Edge, that it was easy for him to become enlightened, be on top of a mountain sitting by himself. Mm-hmm. But it was another thing to try to take that lesson, that teaching, that that affirmation back into humanity 
roll his sleeves uh, up and to be involved with life and still maintain that, that it, poise. Uh, kind of reminds me of that old quote from the Peanuts comic. I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. Well, I think, I think with books like this, I think it may help us all to I think so, yes. be able to appreciate a lot of some of the stuff there. that we that we formerly didn't didn't like and maybe how mm-hmm. to go about changing ourselves. Um, I appreciated their reference in the book also to Stephen Levine, certainly a, a mentor of mine hmm. that I remember the my experiences with his books very, very fondly. Coming up is Victor with Mesoterra. Yay. And we've got a great afternoon here of programming on KZUM. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we've been doing this every Saturday morning since 1984, and it continues to be just a blast to talk with folks like Charlie and Linda Bloom, to drink strong hot coffee, hang out with Jim, and share the conversation with you folks. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much for being out there. I'm Scott Colborn. Until next week, walk in beauty.